Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 22nd of August, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Katie Joe Murfin and our very own David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Um, well, is the drought over, Mike, looking out the window? Uh, apparently not. Okay. It is raining, but it's, that's not sufficient. It's raining extremely heavily here in uh, Plymouth, which obviously is good news for many people. We'll leave it there. Right, we're going to kick off straight away with uh, the state of the media, really, in UK. And uh, let's start with this mirror headline. This was uh, from a day, a couple of days ago, the original article. Uh, exclusive, apparently. British soldiers told to get ready for war against Russia and to prepare their loved ones. So that was quite a, uh, a headline. Uh, but when you get into the reality of it, the Daily Mail was... Uh, mirror. Sorry. Uh, sorry, that should say Daily Mirror. Thank you, Mike. The Daily Mirror spins the line to ramp up the fear. I've got a feeling it wouldn't matter if it was the Daily Mail either, no, but in this case, it was the Daily Mirror. Apologies for that uh, that mistake. Um, well, what's the story about? It's about this uh, gentleman. He's, he's the most senior warrant officer in the British Army, Paul Carney. And uh, he was writing in a military publication. And this is partly what he said. The UK military is now shaping itself to meet the threat from Russia and is ready to counter any aggression. Uh, the time has come to prepare families and loved ones for the possibility of being sent to the East. Now, you had a little look at the uh, article. Uh, Mike, did it match the headline? Uh, well, I didn't notice the word Russia, uh, actually, in the article once. Uh, so, no. So, no. So, it would appear that when the warrant officer was writing, he was talking about the possibility of a deployment into Eastern Europe. Uh, in which case, obviously, the uh, soldiers would be away from their families for some time. Um, but it now appears to have been spun into a headline saying effectively that uh, the British Army is being fully mobilised for war with the Russians. Well, the reality is, according to the BBC, that really the war is, well, it's just deadlock. It's more or less disappeared. So here we are from the BBC's Ukraine section, which, of course, is a tiny selectable button at the top of the BBC homepage, very difficult to find. And that's because the BBC is not keen to report the facts. So uh, we're going to say that this is a fantasy headline to deceive the UK public. But uh, let's move on through with uh, what President Zelensky has been having to say. Um, so he's quoted recently as saying this, a significant milestone is ahead. Six months of this full-scale invasion, the war that changed everything for Ukraine, for Europe and for the world. Since February the 24th, during these 178 days, Ukrainians have proven that our people are invincible, our defenders are invincible. He goes on, our unity, our faith in ourselves made it possible to pass these six months and approach this week, which is always important for every Ukrainian. Obviously, there's some um, some uh, dubious language in the translation, but we get the idea. Uh, we should be aware that this week, Russia may try to do something particularly nasty, something particularly cruel, such as our enemy. But in any other week during these six months, Russia did the same thing all the time, disgusting and cruel. So he's uh, pretty motivated and he thinks that... Uh, it's Independence Day for Ukraine and the Russians are going to do something disgusting and cruel. Um, but uh, let's bring in a little bit of the UK column reality and fact check. Um, this is really the situation. We continue to lose men and ground. We're losing the war. But with the help of US, UK, EU weapons and munitions, I will continue to willingly fight their proxy war to the last Ukrainian. And this is the reality of the battle at the moment, uh, because the Ukrainian losses are not only extremely heavy, but uh, they continue. Well, let's come back to the BBC. Uh, this is uh, part of that Ukrainian page on the on the UK. Oh, sorry, on the BBC main website. Uh, Ukraine cities on alert amid fear of ugly Russian attacks. 
But there's absolutely nothing about the reality on the ground, which is that Ukraine is losing the war. Uh, but what the uh, BBC does over this web page is to ramp up uh, fear over the idea of a nuclear disaster. So although it's become very clear um, that the uh, Ukrainians are doing the shelling against the nuclear part in, uh, plant in Zaporozhye, um, the BBC is saying that this is the Russians shelling their own uh, one ground, which is clearly ridiculous. But the whole of the article here is that there's fear of a nuclear disaster and therefore these experts should come in from the, the West. Mm. Well, if we look a bit more about what's happening on the ground, and I've tried to give a spread of the uh, uh, new reporters who are commenting, uh, this is one of the key stories about what's happening around Mykolaiv. And why are we interested in this? Well, the Russians have taken a key stronghold uh, to the east of Mykolaiv. And uh, this proves without any doubt now that the whole of the uh, propaganda as it was about a massive Ukrainian Southern Front offensive is purely a myth. And if you want to have a look at uh, other uh, places reporting on this. Uh, this is the military summary channel. Some of our viewers prefer this as a, a source of information for detail on what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, but that, this uh, particular channel is also commenting on the fact that this key city has uh, fallen. Well, it's city. It's, it's a small urban area, but very strongly uh, defended. And uh, we can now see that the threat to Mikhailov is growing by the day, contrary to everything that's coming out of uh, Ukraine's Ministry of Defence. And if we look further around the front, uh, we've got other Russian advances. Uh, so if we bring in this one here, Bakhmut is one of the key uh, cities of the eastern line of Ukrainian defences. And the Russians are now steadily moving into that heavily defended urban area. Uh, if we bring in this one on screen, we've got reports that the Russians are moving on New York. That is actually the name of the Ukrainian city. Uh, but this is extremely strongly defended. But the Russians now appear to be cracking through those uh, outward defences. And what we thought we would do now is just have a look at, uh, try and give an idea of the reality of the war. And I've only been able to do this by sourcing from other people who are posting uh, real clips of what's actually happening on the ground in Ukraine. You're not going to find these on the so-called mainstream media or the BBC. And we're going to say thank you very much to all the people who are trying to get out the truth about what's happening over particular, particularly social media. So if we bring this one up on screen and we just play it, there's... Uh, obviously the sound of gunfire, but the point is that this is part of the reality of the battle. Very large open spaces and fields, and uh, the defenders are always forced into the tree lines at the edge of the fields. And what do the Russian and the allied Ukrainian forces do? Well, they're going to shell those trenches and those defended positions in the tree line in order to destroy the Ukrainian forces. And you can see here the close proximity of the artillery. And this is, because of, uh, this is because the Russians are becoming stronger by the day as the resistance uh, diminishes. So let's, uh, sorry, let's just have a look at this one here. Um, this is the next stage when a strong point is found. And this is a pretty brutal uh, missile strike on a defended position but it leaves us in no doubt the sorts of things that the Ukrainian forces are having to face. And uh, what would we like to say? It is time to stop this outrageous war. So if, uh, if we bring in this little uh, clip here, of course, what is happening now increasingly is we've got Ukrainian troops surrendering. Um, there are many little clips like this um, available on the um, internet. And if we just play this, you'll see the reality of troops surrendering because they can no longer take the Russian artillery bombardments. Get 
Руки подними! Где третий? Где третий? Уйди, братуха, обязательно. Уйди, б***ь, спереди уйди, на огни Быстрей! Well, the reality is, of course, that the troops surrendering are those remnants of the forces because uh, most of the, the dug-in forces are being destroyed before the Russians are going to put in any troops for close combat with small arms. And if we look at uh, things on a more strategic scale, uh, we've got a report here describing one of the urban areas that is fortified, and this gives us a, uh, an idea of the strength of the opposition that the Russians are now overrunning. Let's have a look at the comment here on this urban area of Uglidar in South Donbass. Location is definitely Uglidar. As you can see, it, it's uh, basically just a huge fortress. Uh, you have high rise, the whole, the whole town is made up of high rise buildings. All, you know, mo most likely the town has been long since been evacuated. No one lives here. It's just basically the Ukrainian army lives here. Uh, they have, you know, warehouses in the rear, which they can, you know, store their ammo in, uh, and, and they have, you know, obviously like great firing positions. Some of these buildings are probably like six, seven stories tall maybe even taller than that, who, who really knows? So uh, this has been uh, a thorn. So cut off a little bit uh, abruptly there, but he's saying it's been a thorn in the side of the Russians because this is so heavily defended. But you see the area, that urban area, surrounded by this open farmland, uh, which the Russians have got to move across. So how do the Russians deal with those sorts of uh, urban areas? This is the reality, and uh, this is uh, a launch of some of the Russian thermobaric weapons. And uh, this is a little clip that has uh, been played before. We're just going to play it on screen and uh, discuss it. But this is the effect of those sorts of weapons on uh, areas, urban areas defended by the Ukrainians. And it's pretty horrific. Uh, but this is, the, uh, this is the reason why the Ukrainians are suffering such extreme casualties, uh, because they're trying to defend these areas. The Russians are not going to subject their forces or the allied Ukrainians to high casualty rates. And effectively, they are destroying the defense uh, before they get close. So just a horrific battle. Uh, but I'm going to switch away from this because I know many people are going to find it disturbing and say that uh, what is happening in U UK at the moment is that we've got 10,000 Ukrainian troops supposedly being trained in urban warfare every 120 days. Uh, the reality is that most of them are going to die on the front line without ever having seen a Russian or Ukrainian allied soldier. And it's going to be the lucky ones who surrender. Meanwhile, the Russians uh, at a recent military exhibition were clearly showing a lot of captured Western um, uh, equipment, including the M777 howitzers. And uh, what can we say? David, I'll just pass it over to you briefly. But uh, everything shows that the Russians are dominating this war and it's going to move in their favour even faster. Uh, but in our media, the BBC and the newspapers, nobody wants to tell uh, the public in UK the truth of what's really happening. The, the BBC and the newspapers are putting forward a, an entirely false picture of of the Russians suffering enormous casualties, no no discussion of the Ukrainian casualties, um, and um, we had today um, a, 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 an article on the BBC talking about loudspeakers going up 
and calling on people between 18 and 60 to, to sign up to volunteer to go and fight in the Ukraine. And the, this was followed by various interviews with people who had either lost loved ones or who didn't, uh, didn't support the war. So very much the, the Western media um, description is one of Russian incompetence, is one of Russian desperation, and is one of a, approaching Ukrainian victory. Now, when you actually see the situation on the ground, um, there are some things which aren't happening, are noticeable for not happening. There's no major armoured thrusts. I put that down to the anti-tank weapons available to Ukrainians. And the Russian Air Force, although dominating, uh, tends to stay uh, within Russian airspace and not fly close over the battlefield. Again, I put that down to the number of um, of, of handheld weapons available to Ukrainians to um, contest uh, the skies immediately above the battlefield. But you have back to almost World War I tactics where the, the artillery gains ground and then the infantry holds the ground. And this is what's happening in a steadily... A, a steady procession of of of, of advances uh, by the Russians, and there's no sign that there's any end to that at the moment, and there's no sign that the Russians are reaching any point of exhaustion at the moment, um, and the Western media narrative seems to be false. Yeah, indeed. Well, we'll continue to report the facts as we find them. Uh, well, David, let's head over to uh, Moscow then and uh, the uh, assassination of Daria Dugina. Yes, yeah, so this, this happened over the weekend. This is a, 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 a stunning and sad story. Uh, Daria Dugina, daughter of um, the, uh, the philosopher who is um, closely associated with the Putin uh, government and closely associated with the the um, dominant viewpoint in Russia of what Russia is and should be. Um, so this is Alexander Dugin, and, uh, on whom we have reported previously. Uh, the Times here reporting uh, the car bomb which killed his daughter. Um, it reports the daughter of an ultra-nationalist ultra Russian philosopher who helped shape President Putin's worldview and his and is a keen supporter of the war in Ukraine has died in a car bomb attack in Moscow. Kremlin al allies were quick to point the finger at Ukrainian terrorists uh, days after a series of explosions at airfields in uh, Russian-occupied Crimea uh, were attributed to Ukrainian saboteurs. Daria Dugina, 29, died on the highway 30 miles west of Moscow after a blast ripped through the SUV she was driving. 9.30pm local time. And the Times continues, whilst not holding a government position, Dugan is widely seen as having influenced Putin's aggressive foreign policy. His ideology of Eurasianism is an imperial form of nationalism and sees Russia as a unique civilization that has rejected liberalism and has inherited the mantle of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. Such ideas, um, the Times says, reached a high point with the invasion of Ukraine. Dugina herself was sanctioned by the US Treasury in March over an article on the United uh, World International website claiming that Ukraine would perish if it, if it was admitted to NATO. Britain sanctioned her last month as a frequent and high-profile contributor of misinformation on Ukraine. So that's how the, the Times reported it. Um, and we have here, I think, is this a still we have of the event? No, no we have the or, event. Or a section of video. We have the video now. This is this is the uh, the, the evening of uh, where, the, where the bomb went off and killed this woman. And the man you see there with his head in his hands, looking around, that's Dugan. That's her father. And anybody with a heart or any compassion uh, would have to feel for the, the the horrific scene as that man watches um, his daughter's assassination right in front of his eyes. Um, horrific scenes and um from a point of view of 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 sitting here in britain watching this um i must say uh brian and mike that it makes me vastly uneasy to watch terrorism terrorist activity take out journalists and attempt to take out philosophers 
from the side that um, my government is opposing. So are, are we now supporting outright terrorism? Are we saying, well, if you have ideas with, that, that, that are not uh, acceptable, you will die? Is that where the Western position on Ukraine has got to? I find it deeply troubling. Uh, David, I, I think that's exactly where we're at. We are now justifying terrorism. Uh, and uh, more than that, the Daily Mail this morning had an article uh, talk, suggesting that uh, perhaps this act of terrorism was coming from within the Putin regime as well. So we are cynically using uh, an act of terrorism to pursue uh, a, a, a UK government-inspired narrative. It's, it is despicable how this is being portrayed. Utterly, yes. Um, now, the BBC, on the subject of despicable, the BBC was covering this, Daria Dugina, daughter of Putin ally, killed in Moscow blast. Now, bearing in mind the video we just saw where this man was, was standing watching the scene where his daughter was killed, uh, I do find it a bit off, in fact, deeply unpleasant that the BBC uh, chose some of the words that it did. Uh, they want, it went on about Alexander Dugin, known as Putin's brain, may have been the intended target of the attack. He's a prominent ultra-nationalist ideologue close to the Russian president. Um, they then continue, um, his anti-Western philosophy has become the dominant political ideology in Russia and has helped shape Putin's expansionist foreign policy. Um, he's not a state official, but he's nevertheless symbolic in, in Russian politics. And they continue again um, that uh, despite not holding an official position in government, uh, Dugin is believed to be Putin's Rasputin. Branded, he's been branded Putin's Rasputin. And then they go on about um, how his daughter was um, contributing to online disinformation. I think given this, what we've just witnessed there, given the scenes in Moscow, um, the BBC, in fact, anyone reporting on that should have had an entirely more compassionate view, a more fair-minded view, and perhaps left out the Putin's Rasputin rhetoric for maybe another day, even if you're the BBC. Yeah, and, and some condemnation of what was clearly an act of terrorism. Well, it clearly was. I mean, they're suggesting it's, some, it's, it's, it's a Russian source for this is nonsense. It's clearly, it's clearly someone connected to the, the war in Ukraine and favouring the, the Ukrainians. This is, seems to be an inescapable conclusion. And um, it's also troubling, troublingly highly professional in terms of the terrorist activity. This isn't someone turning up with a handgun. This, this starts to look like a professional hit job. One of the Iranian media was actually suggesting it was Mossad. Now, I have a very low opinion of Mossad, but I don't think they're that stupid. But it does look like a professionally organised operation. And is this how this war is going to proceed, where individuals will be taken out because they think the wrong things, they have the wrong ideology, they have the wrong viewpoint? This is, this is deeply troubling. And... Um, uh, just another step down uh, a very dark road. Yes. OK, well, look, very, very briefly, I want to mention that over the weekend, the Russians held what they described as the first international anti-fascist Congress. Uh, and in the middle there, you can see, see Sergei uh, Shoyu. And I just want to quickly uh, say what he, some of the comments that he made. He said, this Congress aims to provide a platform for defending the historical truth about the decisive contribution of the USSR to defeating fascism during World War II, as well as to counter the spread of Nazi ideology. Uh, and he made the point that today we're witnessing another vivid manifestation of the Nazi policy when the Russo Russophobic idea of banning all Russian citizens from entering the European Union is being actively promoted. Now, I hadn't heard this, uh, so I went and had a look, and uh, indeed it is the case. So these EU Schengen countries support an entry ban on Russian tourists so far, says uh, uh, Schengen Visa website. Uh, so far, the group of EU Schengen area countries that support an entry ban on Russian tourist and tourists include uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, 
Finland, Denmark, Norway, Poland, and Czech Republic. Now, it's perhaps you might expect that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland would be in, in that list, but I was a bit surprised to see Finland, Denmark, and Norway on that list as well. So far, Germany is coming out against this idea, but yeah. nonetheless, there's uh, pressure building. Anyway, Shoigu went on to say, uh, it's clear that the financial and economic cooperation between Anglo-American and Nazi business circles was a major factor leading to the Second World War, which uh, cost humanity unprecedented human lives. So he's talking about uh, Montague Norman and also in the UK, but also uh, people like uh, Prescott Bush uh, and uh, uh, Avril, uh, Avril Harriman, the Rockefellers as well, putting money into uh, Nazi Germany in the lead up to the war and so on. But look, I, I just wanted to mention this book. Uh, this is from Rodney Atkinson and Into the Fire. He published this, uh, I think, 2012 or 2013. Uh, and we mentioned it on Extra on Friday, but uh, and although it's uh, largely dated now because it was it was written before the EU referendum and Brexit and so on and, and so from the EU part of it is is a bit out of date. But nonetheless, he goes uh, very briefly into the history and very quickly into the history of uh, how uh, Nazi figures figures from National Socialist Germany uh, at the end of the Second World War ended up effectively in positions of. Uh, uh, well, leading mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the European Union and also in the United States and so on. I, I strongly recommend, it's a short book, everybody gets a copy of it and just uh, tries to understand a bit of the history of that. And perhaps that puts a bit, a, a bit of context on what uh, the Russians were attempting to do with that particular uh, Congress. Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your uh, support would be very much appreciated, uh, or you could pick something up from the UK column shop. Uh, but in any case, do uh, please uh, share our material on the various platforms. And uh, we also want to say, don't forget the alternative view uh, coming up on the 3rd of uh, September. Uh, which um, the live stream starts at 9 a.m. I beg your pardon. I'm, I'm having a good day today, yeah. aren't I? Uh, sorry, the live stream starts at 9 a.m. on the 4th of September 2022. And uh, we want to remind people that the whole aim of doing this is to kickstart Alternative View as a live event uh, where we can actually bring people together in a hotel setting. But this first one is a live stream. Uh, UK Column helping to facilitate it for your support by buying a ticket for this event will allow us to move uh, back to getting those really tremendous events that Ian Crane created uh, back on stream. Yes. Uh, and David, uh, a thank you from you. Everyone who turned out to the two events uh, that Alex and I uh, attended in uh, Scotland, uh, the first one was at Motherwell, it was a UK column. Um, gathering with uh, basically a, a lot of questions and ask us anything. It was tremendous. Uh, and then there was a Glasgow against NATO um, meeting on Wednesday uh, in Govan. Uh, both had tremendous turnouts. In fact, a lack of space in the halls was the only problem. Uh, the dog you saw there with Alex, that's Freya, the Glasgow protest dog, who was lovely. Good stuff. Okay, let's move on then. And uh, well, this was doing the rounds on Twitter this morning. Uh, GPs to prescribe active travel. We're awarding £12.7 million, says the UK government, to 11 areas across England to evaluate how pilot projects can improve well-being in communities, including adult cycle training, free access to loan bikes, uh, led walks and rides, walking groups, personalised travel planning. So what's this all about? Well, this is all about social prescriptions. Uh, now, many people may not have heard of social prescriptions, uh, but this uh, includes walking, wheeling and cycling. Uh, it'll be offered by GPs as part of a new trial to improve mental and physical health and reduce disparities across the government, uh, uh, across the country, sorry, and the government announced that today. So as you say, £12.7 million uh, going to Bath and North East Somerset, Bradford, Cornwall, Cumbria, Doncaster, Gateshead, Leeds, Nottingham, uh, Plymouth, Suffolk and Staffordshire. And these pilots will be delivered during uh, this, between now and 2025. Uh, and so on. Uh, and it's uh, linked to this uh, initiative, Gear Change, a bold vision for cycling and walking, um, which uh, are part of a commitment to the government's Gear Change Plan, which was published in 2020, uh, and so on. So, uh, well, this idea of, uh, of these social prescriptions has been around for a while. This is the University of St. Andrews, I believe this was 2016, published this paper, Social Prescribing and Behaviour Change. And that gives us a bit of a more of a clue as to what this is actually about. 
proposals of a new behavior change technique uh, concerning the connection step. Uh, but uh, although the government is now funding uh, some uh, pilot schemes on this, uh, certain medical practices have already been involved in it. So this is uh, a new NHS system helping to combat non-physical and non-clinical issues. Again, this was from uh, 2019. Uh, and then we've got uh, NHS England here with their paper, Social Prescribing, The Power of Time and Connections. Uh, and we've got this uh, article from gov.uk, Social Prescribing, Applying All Our Health. Um, and uh, so let's just have a look at what this says. It says social prescribing and community-based support as part of the NHS long-term plans commitment to make personalized care business as usual across the health and care system. So there we've got uh, quite a number of things that Debbie's been talking about in the last number of weeks, talking about the NHS's long-term plan, talking about personalized care. Personalized care means people have a choice and control over the way their care is planned and delivered. Oh, really? Let's come on to that in a second. Uh, based on what matters to them and their individual strengths and needs. Uh, social prescribing is one of six components of universal personalized care uh, and so on. And it goes on to say there are many different models for social prescribing, but most involve a link worker or navigator uh, who works with people to access local sources of support. Uh, this term navigator, Brian, uh, this is linked to common purpose, I believe. Well, what, uh, yeah, what you're doing, well, this is pure applied behavioral psychology, but of course, if you have a leader to help um, lead the people and navigate them through, it's on the verge of, of what cults do by taking a group of people and then imposing the leader and then steering the views of those individuals. So a mixture of common purpose and very devious applied political psychology. So steering the views is what Brian's just said. So let's bring the final quote on here. Personalized care relies on people having health literacy, uh, the knowledge, skills, understanding, and confidence they need to be able to use health and care information and services. In 2015, the Institute of Health Equity published a report about improving health literacy to reduce health inequalities. This showed that up to 61% of the working age population in England finds it difficult to understand health and well-being yeah. information. So we're going to teach them all about how to be healthy, how to be well, how to have better well-being. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, you know, vaccinations, they won't be part of that conversation at all, for example. But it, it, it's, it's also putting the adult population into you, our children. You can't really understand this. You need us, the government and our change agents to lead you into the new agenda. This is incredibly dangerous manipulation of the public mind. And I just wanted to, to make the point that this is uh, an expression of policy that's been around for a very long time. So the, here's an article from uh, 2011 by Martin Edwards uh, called The Big Society. And here's a quote. He's quoting uh, uh, the uh, David Cameron from the 2010 uh, Conservative Party conference where he said that the big society is a guiding philosophy, a society where the le leading forces for progress in social, uh, is social responsibility, not state control. Uh, it includes a whole set of unifying approaches, breaking state monopolies, allowing charities, social enterprises and companies to provide public services, making government more accountable. Now, assuming as it would not be unreasonable to assume that uh, David Cameron was lying through his teeth uh, as usual. Uh, but uh, just let's put that back up on screen a second, uh, because, uh, of course, it's not about uh, removing state control. It's actually about bringing state control down to the lowest level. And so, yes, in this case, uh, with these social prescriptions, we're going to see charities uh, and social enterprises and companies providing public services. But we, as we've seen over the last two years, the mechanism by which those services are provided is going to be uh, is going to be dependent on policy that government pushes into those charities. And in fact, the funding is going to be dependent on those charities following the set of rules that the government uh, provides. Yeah. So it's very much state control. Well, it's absolute state control. Many people think that the Conservatives' big society idea was a, a bubble that came and went. But if you actually look at how uh, policies are unfolding at the moment, what you, we are now witnessing is big society. And of course, the Mindspace document from 2010, which you can find as a PDF if you search for it online, was uh, gloating over the fact the government would be able to use applied psychology to think to change the way we think and behave. So we are now entering uh, the Conservatives' big society um, system, and it, it's beginning to look extremely dark, I think is the right 
is the right way to look at it. Now, Friday we were talking about a lady who had to wait, what was it, 40 hours for an ambulance to turn up and then she was waiting a further 20 hours in the ambulance itself, a 90-year-old woman. Uh, well, you'll be glad to know that the government is addressing these issues of, of unavailability of the NHS by spending money in exactly the right places. So here's their latest release, uh, NHS trials smart goggles to give nurses more time with patients. This is fantastic stuff, Brian. So they're going to spend multiple millions of pounds on high-tech goggles, which will be worn by community nurses on home visits to pre free up their time. Um, so as long as a patient consents, they say the virtual reality style headset can transcribe the appointment directly into electronic records, reducing time-consuming admin for nurses. I mean, how could we, we must applaud this, surely? Well, I think not. We're, we're watching the introduction of the Technotronic age and the people introducing it are interested in technology but they're not interested in human beings or human compassion or love or health. Um, I, I had a, an interview with a certain individual last week which will shortly be up with UK Column uh, but that professional said to me that it had become clear to him at least that we were being attacked by our own government. And I think that this is what we're clearly seeing. Um, so, uh, Katie, Joe, let's welcome you to the programme and, and say, well, if the NHS isn't providing uh, service, uh, what alternatives are there? Um, I think it's time to um, stop putting our faith in all of our trust in the government and in the NHS. And we need to start doing something ourselves and creating our own. Um, like everything else, as we see society collapse around us. Um, I went to stay with my Auntie Jane last week um, for a couple of nights. We had a lovely time reminiscing about our childhoods. And someone who always comes up is my great, great Auntie Hilda. Now, um, she, my Auntie Jane absolutely loved her as a child. She uh, was an original punk rocker, pierced her own ears with uh, safety pins and knew everything about all of the trees and the plants and the herbs and uh, was a bit of a witch, really. Um, and one of her most vivid memories was of my great-great-auntie Hilda sewing her own arm up with needle and thread. I'm not recommending people do that, but what I'm saying is she never went to the doctors or to the hospital. Um, and I was saying that that generation kind of almost didn't really need to. They, they knew how to use cupboard essentials, um, vegetables, fruits, and herbs to heal themselves. Um, but my Auntie Jane made a very good point, and that was that people also didn't go into hospital because if you went in, it was very rare that you came out again. Now, allopathic emergency treatment um, has made incredible advances. And obviously, if you're in a car accident and you need immediate critical care, the best place for you is hospital. Um, but otherwise, doctors and hospitals, as it's become incredibly evident over the last two and a half years, aren't really the best place to go to be cured. Um, in 2006, the Nutrition Institute of America funded an independent review of government-approved medicine. And the report is uh, on my first slide, um, was called Death by Medicine. They found the leading cause of death was conventional medicine and that the iatrogenic death rate, uh, that means caused by medical uh, treatment, in the USA was 783,936 a year in comparison to 31,940 deaths by firearms, 19,766 of those which were suicides. Um, now, the people uh, the People's Health Alliance are a group that want to bring an end to the control Big Pharma have over medicine and want to return the power back to us, the people. Um, their goal is to bring everything back to community level uh, with a people-led approach to healthcare. Um, and if you've got their principles there on uh, one of my slides there, it, they are absolutely wonderful. Their principles are, we take personal responsibility for our own health. That is so important that people start doing that and stop relying on doctors and giving them pills and drugs. Um, we work collectively together as practitioner and patient. We are all equals regardless of our role. We believe access to healthcare is a right, not a privilege. We welcome everyone. We embrace an interactive approach to health. We acknowledge the role of nature in healing, another big one for me. We recognize the importance of preventative care. Um, the PHA now have over 80 health hubs focusing primary 
uh, on primary health care across the UK. And in these times where it's almost impossible to get an appointment with your GP, I think we all need PHA hubs in our local communities. Um, and one more thing I'd like to mention is their appeal, which is the power of the pound appeal. Um, within a month of the launch of the PHA, West Midlands Ambulance Service announced that it would stop answering 999 calls from August. Um, the power of the pound appeal is raising funds for first aid training and first aid equipment for communities across the UK. And they're just asking for a pound because they know everybody is struggling at the moment financially. But the, the price of a baked, uh, tin of baked beans is a pound, and I'm sure every single person can spare that once a month. Um, and if we get a million people uh, donating that, then we can really make a difference. They want to um, ask as well if there are any qualified first aiders out there um, or medical equipment suppliers to respond to their appeal. Um, and, uh, you know, if we can all get behind this campaign, I think it's going to be really, really important moving forwards. Um, so it's interesting what they're they're aiming there uh, for some quite useful equipment. So if we put this one on screen, um, the, this is a call for first aiders and medical equipment. We're looking for support to support community hubs with the purchase of equipment such as defibrillators, oxygen triage kits, uh, spinal boards, ventilators, uh, uh, nebulizers, stethoscopes, epipens, uh, multi trauma dressings, and so on. So. Uh, this isn't. This is going well beyond uh, uh, herbs and so on, Kitty Joe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think we obviously, if you, as I said before, if you're, if you're in an, a, a really bad accident, maybe you've had a fall or you've 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 burnt, you know, really bad burn or whatever, you you need allopathic treatment. There's there's no two ways about it. You know, those things like defibrillators, uh, they 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 are necessary. We need we need those. But if you can't get an ambulance, then we need to have those supplies in every single community. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think what's encouraging is that there are many traditionally trained medical professionals who are now starting to think in a different direction because they are seeing that the NHS is simply not working. Um, I just picked up on one of your slides where the ambulance uh, director from whatever area was saying he expected the ambulance service to collapse. I think the date was the 17th of August, which we're past. Um, but for that to be true, uh, this has to be a deliberate destruction of the NHS from the inside. It isn't that every doctor and nurse has become incompetent and can't run a hospital, can't deal with patients. Uh, the management system has deliberately destroyed the NHS from within. That's the common purpose effect, I would suggest, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. OK, let's move on uh, to uh, economic news. And uh, I wanted to highlight this article from Bloomberg uh, in truly alarming signs, surging UK yields fail to rescue pound. Uh, so they're uh, talking about the uh, falling value of the pound compared to other currencies. Uh, another record inflation readout this week spurred money market traders to bet the Bank of England will uh, more than double the key rate to 3.75% by March uh, from the current 1.75% is what they're basically saying. Uh, and they had a couple of graphs. Uh, the first one, uh, the pound fails to meet the benefit of gilt uh, yields surging. So bonds, uh, interest payments on bonds uh, rising, but the, uh, the pound uh, falling compared to other currencies. Uh, but uh, they also highlighted this, uh, the one-year inflation swaps uh, graph. And uh, David, I thought that would interest you uh, if you look at the right-hand side there at what's going on with the one-year one inflation swaps. So in other words, uh, the uh, financial markets absolutely not seeing any end to, to uh, the rise in inflation at the moment. So they're predicting 12% at least a year out then, inflation. Is that what that's saying? Uh, uh, they're they're predicting significant rises in inflation further from where we are at the moment. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that seems about right. And uh, the uh, Bank of England, uh, it'll be all right in eighteen months. Um, rolling prediction, uh, notwithstanding, I, I think uh, they are correct to be taking a very cautious view. Well, let's bring Adam Cole from RBC. Capital on screen because I thought his comment was uh, quite amazing. He said this kind of breakdown in the correlation between currency and yield shifts 
is typically associated with emerging market currencies, suggesting that investors are questioning the credibility of UK policy. Uh, I think it does a bit more than question the credibility of UK policies. It's an it's a absolutely damning indictment of uh, UK economic policy. Uh, but in the meantime, the World Health Organ, uh, the sorry, the uh, World Food Programme, talking about a global food crisis, uh, 2022, a year of unprecedented hunger, as many as 828 million people go to bed hungry every night. Uh, and they're talking about, uh, you know, the usual hotspots of Sahel and the Horn of Africa being the worst parts. Uh, but the point that I want to make here is, of course, Britain isn't doing anything from a policy point of view to alleviate this in any way. And I just want to highlight this absolutely obscene article in The Times uh, that rewilding is bogging us down. Let's call it nature recovery. So uh, the implication is here that, that calling it rewilding is really a bit of a PR disaster. Now, what's happening is that more and more farmers are not uh, between, for example, growing crops. More and more farmers are not uh, growing break crops in between uh, their, their uh, uh, wheat crops, for example. Uh, and instead, they're putting in wildflower meadows for two years. So they're putting in uh, uh, or taking farmland out of productive use uh, for large periods of time. Um, and at a time where we're facing, uh, you know, high inflation, economic collapse and food crises around the world with approaching a billion people starving to death, uh, this is not the time for us to be uh, shutting down our farming capability, but we continue to do it. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, the economic uh, reality hitting people here is uh, English collective of prostitutes. And what are they saying? Well, they're making the point here. Uh, they were featured in the Sky News article. Uh, cost of living crisis pu pushing more women into sex work uh, and, and unable to refuse dangerous clients. Uh, more women, they say, are turning to sex work for the first time, while others have managed to leave it behind. Uh, but we're having to, uh, to return in order to pay the bills. Uh, outreach workers have told Sky News, and they're saying that uh, the phone calls that they get to their support line at the English, English Collective of Prostitutes uh, has increased by a third uh, this summer. And David, uh, that, I think, is a sad indictment of where we are economically. That is. And when they call it sex work, it's sort of, well, it's a job. It's not. It's abuse. It's, it's, it's the abuse and exploitation of a human being. And it's horrendous what the what the girls in this industry and boys in this industry go through. Yeah. Absolutely horrendous. Okay, let's uh, let's move on then to Scottish news, David. And uh, the right to free period products becomes law in Scotland. We mentioned this last week, but uh, what's the latest? Well, so they've um, announced this new right, and it's uh, they've spent already twenty seven million pounds uh, as on the. Uh, on getting this in place, and it's now, uh, it's now got legal backing, and councils and uh, educational institutes uh, will have to provide uh, sanitary products free of charge. I wonder how that will go. I can't can't imagine there would be any unforeseen consequences in that. But good news, everyone. We're going to make sure it's a, it's a success with um um uh, uh, <sighs> oh dear a period dignity officer. That's what they've called this post. It's a period dignity officer. And who is the period digni dignity officer? He's called Jason. He's called Jason Grant. Uh, so Dundee, as SNP-led council, have, have, have appointed this, this man um, to lead the fight against period poverty. And um, this was... Um, Quite a big story. In fact, this went international. Um, the Courier here reporting on it. Uh, they, they, they quote Jason. Um, he says, I'm absolutely buzzing about it. It's definitely pioneering and Scotland's the first to do this, he says. It's about making people aware of the availability of period products for anybody of any gender whenever they need it. I'm in the role for two years. I want to get uh, the areas working together so we have a Tay City approach. This is a... Um, uh, I'm breaking up this, the, the country into into you know, city mayor type areas. Uh, for me, this means negotiating network, creating one voice. It's also about making sure that the voice is strong and consistent and everyone is behind it. So there's only one message. Um, I want to be seen as a positive rail, uh, male role model, he says, a positive male role model. Katie Joe, do you have any comments before we go on? <laughs> 
<laughs> it, I, I'm, I'm almost thinking it's got to be a joke. Is it a joke? It's real. Um, I mean, honestly, can you imagine being a teenage girl? You don't want to speak to a man. You want to speak to a man. They have no clue what it's like to be a woman and experience a period. And even if you're a man and you've transitioned to being a woman, you're not going to get a period. So it, it just it doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Well, may, may I respond a bit? Because, of course, you, you, you've given the clue already that this is not just about women. It's to do with other individuals who might want to use those products. And uh, I'm not going to go into detail for this news, but adults in this country need to understand what's being done here. So women are again being equated, I'm going to suggest, with men who get involved in certain sexual practices and damage their bodies. So this is very, very, very dark uh, policy that's coming in here. People need to understand it for what it is. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's the absolute bane of a woman's life. The period, it's awful. It's, you know, why would anyone want to, have to pretend that? Yes. It's, it's it's complete lunacy, David. So, so um, this the, the Katie Joe's um, is this serious response has been uh, reflected elsewhere. Uh, Martina Navratilova, tennis legend, uh, described the policy as effing ridiculous and absurd. Um, have we ever tried to explain to men how to shave or how to take care of their prostate or whatever? This is absurd. Dundee athletics legend Liz McCaulgan added, is this for real? She couldn't believe it. Now, um, eventually the council came out with a, with a comment. Um, male, male midwives are not controversial. Um, and uh, Dundee council leader John Alexander eventually had to make a comment. He said, the optics and language are very important. And while I understand the views expressed, I think the discussion so far has lacked Context. In what context is he talking about? Um, he said there's, there's a much wider partnership, including a key strategy group, which is all female. Um, uh, we don't have male jobs and female jobs. In fact, most people would campaign against such things. So you can't have gender division. This is a thing. So the, the, um, the concept, the uh, ideology says that the man can do just as, just as good a job as any woman um, campaigning about being a was it, period dignity officer. Um, so that's fine. So it's the ideology is forcing the decision making is what's happening here. Now, um, do you think, lady and gentlemen, that's the worst appointment that has happened in Scotland in the last week or so? Uh, probably because not. You'd be, you'd be wrong. Let me introduce you to... Alexandria Adamson, right, co-organizer and learning disabilities officer for the SMP Disabled Member Group. Okay, now you would think that someone who was a learning disabilities officer for the Disabled Members Group would be someone with, you know, compassion and a gentle approach and an understanding nature. Um, let's roll the video. That was a protest outside the Scottish Parliament um, where some campaigners against the Gender Recognition Act, which allows people who look like me to identify as women and go into women-only spaces, um, uh, was being protested against by a group of women. And there was a group of, of people in favour of the Gender Recognition Act and supporting of uh, trans ideology um, counter-protesting. And one of the counter-protesters was uh, Alexandria Adamson. She was the one screaming witch. 
So I thought that was quite interesting. It does get worse. Um, we have here um, some comments you made about um, the uh, Conservative leadership election. Um, so she's actually been suspended from the SNP for this because uh, the point that um, she, we'll come to that in a moment, said of um, Rishi is if he comes to Scotland, he'd be assassinated if he stepped one foot in our country. Trust ain't welcome either. So we're seeing someone with very extreme views, but we've got a little uh, more information on this person. It's a bit it's a bit of a surprise because it comes from the Dorset Echo. And uh, this is um, a very um, a sympathetic piece from the Dorset Echo, essentially saying she's stunning and brave because Alexandria was born in the wrong body. Uh, he, he was actually born as Alex Laurie. And um, Alex Laurie was um, suffering bullying and was very unhappy and went to Weymouth to start a new life. So I thought it was interesting that, went, that he went to a, a leafy and conservative part of England, uh, given the comments about Rishi and Liz Truss. But there we go. And the Dorset Echo goes on, and it, it's, um, again, talking very sympathetically and also very positively about a group called Rainbow Bournemouth, um, who su provides support to people who want to change their gender. And I had a quick look at their site. So, shall we say it's highly medicalised. Um, now, we've now got another piece on, on this person from Redux, a feminist website, uh, the trans activist said, put terse in their place, and it has been appointed to office by Scottish lawmakers. Reporting here again on Alexandria, a trans activist was called, who was called for the mother of politicians he disagrees with in the film Screaming Insults at Women last fall, has been appointed the Learning Disabilities Officer by the governing Scottish National Party. Um, and the the they also point out, that he, he quotes Bible verses which state that the lesson of kindness is on her tongue and concludes by a certain view that all autistic, disabled and LGBTQ plus Christians were born with a divine purpose. Do not judge us, it's unbiblical. They also said that Elizabeth Truss should be put to death, uh, referring to her as a demon and a bitch. So the trust, the, the judgment is okay when we do it is the summary. And uh, a final one on this, uh, Alexandria Adamson, music and ministry after being a victim of ableist and transphobic cyberbullying uh, from attendees of a terrorist protest in the Scottish Parliament, which has a knock-on effect on my mental health and physical well-being. I've had to cancel all future busking and open-air ministry ventures until further notice. Um, my point here is that this is a person with clear mental health challenges, very unstable, prone to rage, prone to anger. Um, and I would ask anyone who's watching this not to contact him through social media because I can only see that as making things worse. Uh, but why would any SMP National Executive Committee appoint this person to look after um, this, uh, education for, um, for, for people with disabilities? I mean, can you think of anyone less qualified, anyone less suitable? And my point here is is what is what is being done to the society by appointing people who are clearly only going to do harm and push an agenda um, at the at the cost of anything that the uh, organisation is meant to be achieving. David, the response to this is very very easy. And the starting position is that the objective of the Scottish Parliament or, or Parliament in Westminster is now to attack and destroy our own country and society. And if that's your objective, which I strongly suggest it is, then an individual like this will help that agenda um, very effectively. So it's a question of of starting to step back from our governments are there to protect us and help society and help people have enjoyable, uh, prosperous, productive lives, 
we are dealing with the governments attacking us. And an individual like this, of course, is a perfect change agent for helping to break down society. Yeah, well, yes, I think we're on to Katie Joe now, and uh, she's looking at um, some community action. Is that correct? We, we finally got to the point where we're all astonished on yes. UK Column News at what we are reporting. This is what's special about today. Yeah. OK, uh, Katie Joe, let's move on to the One Club then. I've had a great idea um, of a community jubilee. Um, I've been in a couple of meetings uh, for the One Club, um, which actually stands for Our New Earth. And they are full of people that are wanting to do something and take action. And their latest project is a fantastic idea. Um, the Community Jubilee enables people to come together in a nurturing environment and reconnect with each other while celebrating community and life. Um, I think this is a fabulous way for those people that are starting to question what's going on. Um, I mean, where else can they do this? I think protests can be too scary for some people to attend and it can be overwhelming. So um, I think this is the perfect way, organising a small little event in your local community. Um, they've got fantastic posters and flyers that you can download to print out and um, uh, put around in your local area and just get people involved and be there for them as they start to see that things aren't you know, right in the world. And they, they've got a lot of questions and we need to be there for them. So I think that's a fantastic event. Um, so please go to the website if you're interested in hosting your own. Uh, the next Uprise and Shine is coming up next month and it's in Glastonbury. It's the weekend of the 16th of September. And like the previous Uprise and Shine events, the timetable is full of incredible speakers. The awesome David Edelman is talking about how we can get kids on board if they aren't already. And on the Saturday night, there's the chance to dance the night away with uh, superstar DJ Mark Devlin. But there are two speakers on the Sunday that I'm extremely excited about. Um, the first one uh, is David Noakes. Um, if you've got the slide there, who, is, who regular UK column viewers would know exactly who this is. Um, he's been recently uh, released from prison, having served a six month uh, sentence basically for curing cancer. Um, in David's uh, clinic in Switzerland, they were saving 75% of stage four cancer patients. And in Guernsey, their latest clinic, they were saving 84% of cancer, pa cancer patients. So improving all the time. And their success was the reason the MHRA basically closed them down and David was jailed. Um, so he's speaking on the Sunday, which is extremely exciting. And then we have Dr. Sam Osmanovic, um, who is a Bosnian archaeologist. And he, had, as, he led the team that discovered the Bosnian pyramids. They are the largest and oldest on the planet, 33,000 years old. Um, there is also a huge underground tunnel system underneath the uh, five of the oldest pyramids there. And you can actually go into these tunnels and explore them. They're the only tunnels under any pyramids in the world that you can do this. Um, and they have a, astonishing healing qualities that uh, medical doctors and scientists are investigating. Um, he also challenges the mainstream theory on how humans came to live on this planet um, and has written 18 books, I believe. Um, I've watched a couple of interviews uh, with him on uh, YouTube. You can find them easily and he's fantastic. So um, I would well urge anybody to go. Um, there's a march in London on Saturday. Um, Save Our Rights are um, running Operation Overreach, a way to help people take action against the 10 bills that are currently and ever so quietly going through right under our noses. As everyone is distracted with the pantomime, who's going to be the next prime minister? Um, our human rights are at stake if these bills go through and uh, they're, they're irreversible. There's no way of getting our rights back. So we have to do everything we can to stop them from happening. So um, other than writing to your MP and sharing it on social media and protesting, Louise May Crayfield, I spoke to her yesterday and she said that she's actually gone back to door knocking. She's gone back to going around her local areas and knocking on doors and and actually talking to people. And it's astonishing, she said, the amount of people that have no clue what is going on. They don't know about these 10 bills because obviously it's not being um, told through the uh, mainstream media. So um, I think that's a fantastic uh, thing to do. And I think it's something we should always, we've got the time, uh, do. And she said that she's had a fantastic response. So, um, so if you can if you can manage some time to do that, then that would be great. 
Um, and last but not least uh, is another campaign from Save Our Rights UK, um, which is called the Heat and Eat campaign. And Louise has asked me if I'll help her with this. She found out that I did um, the musical Oliver. Um, I did that 11 years ago at Drury Lane in the West End. And so she, she thought, she came up with a fabulous idea. Let's uh, flash mob in different constituencies, different town centres, um, have the kids singing food, glorious food. And I'm actually working with Debbie Cutting, who rewrote the lyrics to my Dolly Parton parody. So we're rewriting the lyrics to make them match the campaign and just doing our best to get it out there. We're going to have two teams of children. So we're going to have a Manchester team and we're going to have a team here um, down south so that we can cover as many constituencies as possible. If you would like to be involved, if your children would like to be involved in these uh, flash mobs, then please contact me, katiejo at hopesussex.co.uk. Um, and we'll be doing all of the rehearsals and all the flash mobs. They will take place at the weekend. So you don't have to be home ed to be involved with that campaign. Brilliant, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, David, a couple of final slides. Yes, one meme that's been captured by the good guys. So we've got the masked people standing, holding up signs, and they say, stay home so we can make COVID disappear like, and the last two signs have been hacked, uh, and it's uh, disappeared like the security footage from Epstein's cell. <laughs> I rather like that one. And finally, um, and finally, um, in honour of the uh, period dignity officer, here we have Edwin Moore tweeting out um, a, a, a female um, post, post office employee waving a little girl and saying, hi, tell your daddy I am the new prostate dignity officer. Yes, I am prostate pat. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well... We've got to end there. David and Katie Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I think we're almost speechless today, but it's very clear that there is something very nasty at work in, uh, in the UK. Uh, other professionals are now also talking about the fact they feel we are being attacked. And this does explain a lot of things. When you look at it, you look at uh, the change around us from the point of view that the government does not have our best interests at heart then bills, policies and social changes, economic changes somehow start to make sense. But uh, we can have a look into that more in the future. I'll be back in a few minutes uh, on the main live stream for some extra. Yeah, thank you very much.